Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, my guest today is somebody I've been excited to talk to for a long time, Dana Boyd. She is a fantastically interesting person, a, a computer scientist, come anthropologist. She's the founder of Data and Society, a principal researcher at Microsoft Research, a visiting professor at New York University, uh, member of the Council on Foreign Relations, director of the Crisis Text Line. She, she does a lot of interesting stuff and, and researches some really interesting things. She has done a lot of work on social media, how young people use it, what are the dynamics on it, how do people move from one network to another, why do they use the networks they use it, really shaped my understanding of, of what social media is and what it says about us. She's been doing work on the media, particularly since the election and during the election, about how the media works and how it is vulnerable to manipulation, what the informational dynamics of it are, what role it does and doesn't realize that it's playing in, in today's informational ecosystem that, that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, this was a, a lot of fun as a conversation. She is a really, really, really interesting person. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Um, as always, a couple quick plugs. Check out I Think You're Interesting by Todd Vanderwerf, Vox's critic at large. Um, he is doing great long-form interviews, interviews like these, but with really fascinating, interesting, unusual cultural figures. I've been enjoying it quite a bit. I think you'd enjoy it too. That's I Think You're Interesting, which you can find wherever you find your podcasts. As always, check out The Weeds, uh, my policy podcast with Matt Iglesias, Sarah Cliff, and others. And email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com with guest suggestions, feedback, whatever you want. All that said, here is Dana Boyd. Dana Boyd, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. L let me begin with this question. What do you do? <laughs> That's a tricky question. Um, I started out as a computer scientist and retrained as an anthropologist, uh, which is where I come from. Real and quick, don't fast forward that. How did you make a decision to reach? That's, an, that's a fascinating decision. <laughs> um, I started out as one of the first kids who grew up online and I went to college thinking that I would build the systems that uh, I so loved being a part of and right this is this is the mid 90s and so computer science seemed like the obvious path right that's what you should study if you want to build the systems and then I realized I was more interested in what it was that people were doing with the systems and at first I started using my technical skills to visualize uh, social behavior in fact one of my earliest works was to visualize social networks online before we had, you know, Friendster, MySpace, Facebook, etc. Uh, and so I started tracking why people were doing things. Um, I started blogging in 1997 as a way of communicating with, you know, a Zen master that I was working with. I didn't realize that this was going to be a thing. Oh, um, hold on. I'm sorry. You keep <laughs> tossing off extremely interesting comments and then and then you began blogging as a way to communicate with a Zen master? Yeah, I was I was in college. Which Zen master? I, 
Um, he was a professor at Brown, and then he transferred mid-semester to Oberlin. And so he was a teacher, and we were taking a course, and he agreed to continue that course as an independent study. And so there were two of us in the class that continued this on, and we were both computer science students. So we decided that the best way to do our daily reflections, which we were originally doing as a you know pen-to-paper exercise, would be to put them up on a website um, so that he could read them from afar. And we, you know, both sat down and figured out how to do this and decided that we should put forward and back buttons and, you know, locate each of these entries by a date, um, kind of a form of a journal. And we made a calendar, you know, in the old way of making an HTML calendar. Uh, and basically, we're doing something that people were already inventing elsewhere, but we didn't know it at the time uh, that would be known as blogging. It's you, you parallel invented blogging. We, I parallel, I wouldn't quite say invented because I started to learn that it actually had a lot of, you know, earlier folks that were much more deeply engaged. And honestly, my audience was like six people and that, I never imagined that I was going to be speaking to many more. In fact, to this day, I still like to pretend that my audience for my writing is about six people. I think it keeps me more sane. I, I would, I would also like to pretend that I've, I've sort of <laughs> begun to fail, but, but I do think that's healthier. Okay. So you're a computer science, uh, major. And at some point you retrain in, in anthropology. Yeah. What is the impetus to retrain as an anthropologist? Oh, so I was at the MIT Media Lab using technology, thinking about social practices, and I began visualizing large-scale networks on the internet. And uh, 9-11 happened, and the Department of Defense demanded access to the code that I had written from MIT, and I was not pleased, so I left my graduate program. And my undergrad advisor, Andy Van Dam, who's a beloved uh, figure in my life, he called me up and said, go back to grad school. And I was like, no. <laughs> and we got into a fight, and I explained that I was going to move to San Francisco, and he basically said, I know somebody who's brilliant in San Francisco. You should go and study under him. And this was a man by the name of Peter Lyman, who was at Berkeley. And, you know, out of uh, respect to my uh, undergrad advisor, Andy, I went and met with Peter and, and fell madly in love with him, decided he was the best thing ever. And while I was out there, he introduced me to a whole variety of people. I ended up back in grad school. Genevieve Bell at Intel had helped mentor me. I ended up working with Mimi Ito. All of these people were anthropologists who had basically escaped the traditional form of anthropology in order to understand the intersection of technology and society. And I found a new home for myself, filled with amazing people who were really trying to understand technology and the cultural you know, landscape um, as it was radically shifting below our feet. And so you were already, before you trained as an anthropologist, you were already visualizing social networks. You were doing something that the Defense Department decided that they wanted <laughs> from you. What were the skills that you were trying to learn from anthropology? What what did you want to understand or what kind of analysis did you want to run that you didn't feel able to run at that point? Well, I think the, the questions start with the word why. Why are people doing this? What is the cultural logic? What is the way in which they're approaching the world where this all makes sense? Um, and, you know, keep in mind that during that gap year between MIT and Berkeley, I got a call in December of 2002 from a guy that I had met at MIT saying, hey, there's this new website called Friendster. You might find it really interesting. 
And I was like, that's fascinating. So I started randomly just asking people about how they were using Friendster. What were they doing with it? Why did they think it was so cool? And I would write about it in my blog, <laughs> right? again, for six people. And to my surprise, people found this quite interesting. And they were just like, huh, this is a phenomenon. And mind you, in academia, I started writing up about this stuff. I actually wrote my first academic article about this, and I submitted it to a conference. And the reviews that I got back was that this social network thing was never going to have an impact on society, and therefore it was not relevant for publication. And I was like, oh, okay, that's good to know. <laughs> Wait, that is a criteria by which things are decided for publication? <laughs> for this particular conference, it was about okay. uh, it was about you know cultural implications, and and you know internet stuff was so esoteric, but. I loved it because it was esoteric. I loved it because people were imagining all sorts of possibilities. And so much of how they were using these technologies, which is why I was so fascinated by their practices, was to imagine things that went far beyond what the designers were imagining. They were just trying to see these as tools within their broader lives, and they were trying to use them for what they thought was most important to them. And it was often not what you know those Silicon Valley designers were imagining they should be used for. And that disconnect is part of what I loved, understanding the disconnect between the design and development process and the everyday usage practices. A lot of your work seems to me to take place in that in that space. And, and you had a very nice um, turn of phrase a moment ago where you talked about the imagining of possibilities, what the, the people creating these spaces, there's a lot of utopian vision around them. And it seems to me a lot of your work now is about the ways in which those utopian visions have been darkened by the reality of how these spaces are used, how making the world more open and connected often can lead to more polarization and more fracturing, how spaces online that were built to to be places where people could be free and be whoever they want are instead validating and reifying um, ongoing prejudices. Was that for you a turn in your thinking? Was there a moment or a period in which you began to look around and say, oh, you know, maybe we had this wrong? Or did you come to it with that kind of skepticism? The funny thing is, for me, the skepticism was baked in the whole way. I mean, the, the turn of phrase that I keep going back to is that the internet is used for the good, bad, and ugly, right? It magnifies the good, bad, and ugly. And I've always come back to that. And I still believe that that's true. It's this moment where we can see these tools be used to create such openings, to create such opportunities, to, you know, imagine different futures, but they can also be used to reify all sorts of existing prejudices and inequities. Um, you know, and in the early days of my work, when I was doing work with youth, I was the one that was simultaneously looking at how people who were identifying with a lifestyle of anorexia were using these tools alongside dreamers who were imagining them as activist tools. And they were seeing it in the same vein, the same kind of online communities. The same is actually true today. And the challenge is, is that that cost, that cost to us of not grappling with both simultaneously means that we ping pong from hype to fear back and forth. And right now we're definitely in a moment of fear. Um, and the, the remedy isn't to go back to a, a moment of hype. It's to understand what that manipulation looks like, what the negative aspects of society look like, where we see inequities and how we can actually help alleviate pains that have existed within society long before the Internet came to play. Well, you have a very nice line in a speech you gave, I think reasonably recently, where you say technology is made by people in a society and it has a tendency to mirror and magnify the issues that affect everyday life. And one of the reasons I found that line striking is that technology and the narrative around it, I think, often obscures that it is made by people and that it reflects the the 
issues and, and factors in everyday life, when we have big data and machine learning algorithms, whatever they spit out, it seems that it is somehow neutral. When in fact, it's, you know, drawing on how we programmed it and the data that, you know, we have created as a society. And, and so I'd love to hear a little bit how you're you're thinking about that and, and how you bring that lens to it, because it seems to me to be one of the big blind spots in our discussion about technology that we sever it from ourselves and seem to think that it is somehow correcting for biases that we have not ourselves been able to correct for. Right. And I think that's because in many ways we, we like numeracy. We like understanding things as though they are facts. We can just get down to facts. We can have reasonable conversations. That is a very comforting frame for many people. And I think from my perspective, a lot of it is understanding people's intentions and the messiness of that. Um, because on the flip side, we also say, oh, well, a corporation, its you know goal is to make money and it's going to manipulate people for money. I'm like actually a corporation is also made up of people and it's messy. And what they do to make a product is very messy. And so we see all of this coming together as a constantly fluid state where people keep trying to course correct. I mean, think about the early days of search engine optimization, right? Or the, you know, dynamics of spam, right? People had different incentives and different motivations and they come colliding against one another. And then people try to course correct. They try to innovate their ways around that. And it creates more and more mess um, without necessarily getting to the underlying dynamics. And so a lot of what I see right now, I see you know, I see the values of society, which are not actually uniform. They're diverse. They're conflicted. And they're even internally hypocritical for an individual. All of that comes playing into the Internet in different ways. And I, it's one of the reasons that, you know, I think that the way of thinking that I keep coming back to is a hacker mindset. And I mean that in a really positive sense, which is that if you think about the rise of security, um, you think about actually putting hackers alongside people who are trying to develop security infrastructure because it's the people who break it alongside the people who make it that actually can imagine all sorts of different possibilities. And I think that we need that for broader societal structures. We need to understand why people are trying to break these systems as well as why people are trying to make them and where that collision occurs and that that resolution is not necessarily more technology or, you know, just a magical fix that will somehow fall from the sky. It's about working through those differences. And that is the project of being a part of a society. And it's the hardest project to maintain. And it's one that technology can't solve for us. Can you talk a little bit about the research you did on the digital white flight from MySpace and Facebook? Because I found this to be a really fascinating story that, that I didn't know before I actually read you on it and, and that I think most people don't know and haven't thought much about. Yeah. So the context here is that um, Friendster was this social network site that was adopted by many actual classical early adopters. And so they were on the site and the site was sort of collapsing for different reasons. Another site popped up, which was called MySpace. The early adopters of MySpace were primarily music affiliated. Um, and so they were really interested in bands and music. And that meant that they were 20 somethings, but it also meant that teenagers living, especially in urban environments, really wanted to get access to it. And so originally the site was 18 plus and then it was 16 plus and then it was 14 plus and all of these teenagers flocked to it because it was where their older cousins were at. As teenagers joined MySpace, a set of fear mongering emerged within the broader media landscape. It became a dangerous place and we, we replicated a conversation that we've seen, you know, over and over again with regard to internet and young people, which is that there, you know, it'd be a site of dangerous, risky behavior, sexual predation, bullying, et cetera. That became the context in which people understood MySpace. 
as MySpace was starting to get hit with a lot of these critiques, another site was popping up that was um, targeted at colleges. Of course, that would be Facebook. People started getting onto Facebook as it went from college to college, but you couldn't get access to it as a teenager. For a group of teenagers, though, getting access the moment they got their college ID became extraordinarily desirable. And eventually, Facebook opened up to high school students, and this would have been in 2006. So what happened in the year of 2006 to 2007 is that this sort of division occurred between whether you went to MySpace or whether you went to Facebook and what kinds of cultural participation you understood yourself to be a part of. And so you had people who were really seeing it as part of a way of being a part of urban life. That was MySpace was a lot of the original framing because it was connected to music. Facebook was a lot of people who were seeing it as part of an elite collegiate environment. As those two sites sort of uh, competed with one another and as a lot of anxiety occurred around kids on the Internet during that period, the language that the media started picking up on and the language that young people started picking up on had originally racial overtones and in many ways class overtones. And those overtones were narrating the idea that you know, MySpace was a dangerous, risky, you know, messy space. Facebook was clean, safe, private, etc. And so what occurred was a split between those populations that in many ways played down the lines of class and race in the United States and became infused with those frames. And so I started talking about this as a digital white flight because a lot of young people left MySpace um, to go to Facebook because it was seen as the clean alternative. Um, and given you know the histories of that in the United States, it very much was a matter of a lot of young white individuals first flocking to Facebook as a space to get away from the dangers of the Internet. And it was really tricky because it just kept replicating both with the youth and with the media about how it was covered. And we saw this get replicated also around the globe uh, in different sites as they sort of divided. It wasn't always just the MySpace Facebook division. But I should say we see this over and over again. Um, and we see media conversations around, for example, the dynamics between Instagram and Vine played a very similar kind of framing uh, playing out, um, which is really tricky because, you know, for better or worse, once a site is deemed as working class, once it is deemed as, you know, pejoratively in, in race and, and uh, class terms, it often suffers uh, the ability to attract advertisers and to become a large sustaining site. So there's a way in which this plays into the broader landscape as well. How do you see the current social media landscape for, from that perspective? When when you look at which sites are, are powerful, which sites are dominant, which are rising, which are falling, is there a version of that playing out today? There are certain sites that are more popular by certain demographics. I mean, we certainly see, you know, a significant difference between who uses um, Twitter and who uses Facebook as their dominant site. We also see differences between Snapchat and Instagram, but those are messier. Those have a lot to do with social positioning and status than they do necessarily with class and race in a traditional sense. The dynamic also is really shaped right now by age. I, I liken Facebook for most young people as the equivalent of, of email for people my age, which is that you know, my mother's generation was like, you've got mail. And that was exciting. Yay. And my world is like, you've got mail. Mm, I'm not sure how I feel about that. And the same is sort of true for a lot of young people. I talked about Facebook. They're like, yep, I'm on it. My family's on it. Uh-huh. But what I really hang out is, you know, and then it's, it's Tumblr or it's Twitter or it's, you know, Snapchat or it's Instagram. And that has a lot to do with demographics and communities. You just mentioned Tumblr, which is one of the ones I've always been fascinated by, which seems to be a real space of youth culture, but that possibly for that reason is um, really shaky a, a, as a business and is 
it, it, from the outside seems to me to have fallen on, on harder times. How do you place the Tumblr story? How does it play into this? Right. Tumblr is, is I would say, is actually more raw internet than I would say purely youth. It is subculture. And the result is, is that it's not mainstream. It's where people go to debate out different ideas. It's where we still see a lot of use of pseudonyms in a, in a, in a culturally fun way. It's where people are actually sharing and engaging around shared topic rather than, um, you know, known social relationships. You know, it feels very internet-y to me as opposed to necessarily just youthy. There's no doubt that youth are, are a key part of that. In terms of its business, you know, when you have an ecosystem that is heavily focused on advertisement, subcultures aren't going to be where you raise a lot of money. And I think that's an unfortunate part about how the internet industry has emerged is that the internet industry only sees sustainability and desirability when it can be, you know, reaching billions of people. The idea of reaching millions of people is not good enough because it doesn't allow you to compete in an advertiser dollar ecosystem. And I think that's really unfortunate. And I think that's part of why we've lost a lot of true internet cultural practices because they're not really self-sustaining economically or maybe they would be self-sustaining, but they're certainly not venture-backed sustaining. They're certainly not going to be a unicorn um, if they're really subcultural. And I think that's that's really sad. Nowhere do we see that more right now than even what's happening with Twitter, right? Like every journalist loves Twitter, but Twitter is not going to be the primary site for everyone in the world. And that makes it a very difficult business to, to manage and grow. It's also tricky because, you know, in the business landscape, if you can't keep inventing new products, if you can't keep inventing new features, if you can't keep getting new users, if you can't keep pleasing Wall Street, you're not going to be able to, to grow and sustain. And I think we're going to see some beautiful sites collapse under that pressure. One of the the other pieces of this that has been, I think, a pretty big story in the last couple of years has been the return to the sort of algorithmic leaders. All of these sites that have survived, maybe not Tumblr as much, but, but certainly Twitter and Instagram, they've all become much more algorithmic in, in what they serve. You have this very nice distinction uh, about algorithms giving us what we want rather than what we think we want or rather than what we say we want. And you use the the example of Netflix and how sort of learning that distinction forced them to, to restructure their recommendations engine. Can, can you sort of walk through that that story and that point? Sure. So Netflix had this great competition for a while trying to invite people to optimize as much as possible for what users were going to most likely want in terms of the next DVD. This is back when their business was primarily about sending DVDs. And the funny thing about that optimization process is that people would get these DVDs and it would be what they ideally wanted, right? So I really want to see 12 Years a Slave, right? I want to see that film because it's so intense and so beautiful. But on any given night, I'm exhausted and I look at that DVD and I go, oh, I can't do that tonight, right? And so what happened is that this competition happened at the same time that they were transitioning their business to allow for more streaming. And of course, what people wanted when they were streaming was basically cotton candy, right? They wanted whatever would just be, you know, light and fun at that moment. And instead of seeing the really, you know, ideal movies that they they thought of as core to their identity, they were watching the movies that sort of made them laugh in the moment. And we saw this effectively a gluttonous kind of uh of shift. 
And it's this amazing tension because, you know, our ideal selves often want us to be, you know, reading long form, thinking deeply, really engaging with the politics of the day. And our immediate, you know, our immediate selves are like, you know, what does it mean where I've got five seconds as I'm waiting for the subway are focused on, you know, what's the headline that's going to like make me, you know, emotionally react. And that's where we have a tricky dynamic as we think about the algorithmic systems around us because if the goal is to produce content or, or to feed up content that will result in clicks or likes or forwards, it's going to be that immediate fast, oh my goshness. It's not going to be the in-depth thoughtful pieces that, that we necessarily forward on. And that's where we have a, a big challenge for us as a society because we go to comfort fast. And it's not even just in the realm of content. I, I think a lot about um, the work of Mazarin Banaji, who's a professor at Harvard. And she talks about why diversity is so hard in the workforce, right? This is, again, something we ideally want. Not only do we ideally want for all sorts of social purposes, but study after study shows that the more diverse a workforce team is, the better quality of its outputs, right? It's more successful in its business. So even for our economic interests, we would think diversity was really ideal. But what Mazarin found is that when people are asked to evaluate their performance, they believe themselves to perform worse if they're from more diverse teams. Not only that, they believe themselves to be less happy when they're in diverse teams. As a result, when people are optimizing for happiness or when they're optimizing for perceived success, they actually go to homogeneity, right? And that has huge ramifications for us as a society. And we keep seeing this happen over and over and over again. And it's part of what the unintended consequences are of the systems that we build. So we talked for a moment about the issues of white flight. Well, what ha started happening on college campuses once Facebook came into play was that people started actually looking for the people that were like them on campus. And so even though there was an amazing engineer social engineering project of getting people to live amongst diverse groups of people – they would actually move towards more homogenous, you know, uh, relationships because they had technology that allowed them to focus in on people that were like them. And that's where we're seeing it in algorithms. We're seeing it in social practice. We're seeing everything move towards finding the world that's just like you. And part of it is that we keep talking about this as though it's a filter bubble produced by the algorithms. But in many ways, it's a filter bubble produced by our worst instincts, our, our, our desire for the quick and easy and the happy. When you go back to those early utopian visions, the web was going to connect everybody. It was going to bring people together. It was going to erode difference. It was going to create a space where people could interact on the basis of what they thought and how they communicated and not sort of traditional societal categories. And, and as you say, there's a lot of evidence that when given the choice, we self-segregate across a lot of different dynamics, right? We self-segregate educationally, you know, racially, um, ideologically, and we want to blame the platforms for this. Uh, this is a, a criticism I see, you know, made of Facebook and made of Twitter. You know, they have particularly Facebook, although increasingly Twitter, these algorithms that make it easier for us to see what we want. But it is also in us. And as we keep jamming into each other, the sort of collisions get bigger and more unpleasant and which causes people to, to, to pull back more. And so I'm, I'm curious what the optimistic case around this is because the grand social experiment we're running 
it does not seem to be leading uh, us into a in, in in an optimistic direction around our ability to live with and tolerate and understand and and respect each other. Right. Well, I mean, let's flip back twenty years, you know, or more. And part of what was important at that time is that the early adopters of these technologies were, by and large, self-identified people who were on the margins of society. Right. Geeks, self-identified queer folks, freaks, you know, people who were desperate to find people that were like them. And so part of this utopian vision was realized by these folks who realized that they could connect over geographic distance to somebody who shared their interests. I mean, think about how beautiful Usenet was, right? A whole world of people that were just like you. That is amazing. And part of it is that the axis of similarity was an axis of similarity that was not recognized in an everyday environment. It was not something that I experienced in my high school. And so I found sameness online in a really delightful way. That looks different when we're talking about mainstream use of technology, where sameness is actually the coordinating and organizing principle already existing in society. So doubling down on it becomes really costly. So the question then is, what is the social experiment to encourage and support diversity? We haven't built it yet. I'm not convinced we can't. In fact, we've built versions of it over time and over history. You know, one of the things that I like to remind people of is that the military has played a really critical role in the United States in diversifying social networks. It's the place where people had to actually connect with people who had different political goals, who came from different, you know, home backgrounds, different class backgrounds. And not only did they have to get to know each other, they had to trust each other with their lives, right? That was is an amazing part of the project of an American democracy. It's not just the violent acts that we think of as associated with the military. It's the way in which it bonded people in critical points of American history. So the question for me is, what is the new construct for an internet age? What does it mean that we can actually move people through time and place because of technology to allow them to connect? What will allow them to work together for the large social project that we call society. And that's where my hope is that, you know, people start to innovate around that. They start to think about what that kind of endeavor can look like. And that's actually where I think that the dark days of right now, where people are really existentially flipping, frankly, about, you know, what hath we wrought, hopefully that can lead us to a project where we're starting to imagine how to actually re-knit society in a productive way to learn to hear one another. And I actually think we can do that. And I think there's nothing more like an existential crisis to trigger that to happen. So I, I think the military example is such an interesting one here because it's such a coercive example. The the way that worked traditionally in American life, um, we had periods of drafting, which created a very, very powerful force towards making disparate types of people learn to work together. Then later, we moved away from drafting, and then eventually we moved towards such a small volunteer force that we outsourced a lot of it to private companies. And as you write in your piece, it becomes less and less a uh, institution dedicated to diminishing difference. Online, the, the digital world the underlying ethos is so built around these unquestionable ideas in American life, freedom and choice, right? What we are getting more and more is our ability to freely decide what we want to watch at any given moment. We are not confined to what a couple of networks or 50 cable channels are putting on. We can interact with whoever we want, right? We're not confined to the people in our town. We don't have to sort of figure out how to get along with 50 or 70 or 600 kids in our high school. And when we have that choice, it seems that over time, we make choices that are typically oriented towards comfort, typically oriented, in, as, as you put it, towards sameness. 
And so part of this seems to me to be a sort of fundamental collision with underlying ideas that animate virtually everything online. I mean, I think if Mark Zuckerberg was sitting here or Jack Dorsey or whomever, you could they would have a lot of sympathy with this conversation. But the moment you get to a point where it, the idea is, hey, maybe people should not be able to make these decisions. Maybe we need a modern day equivalent of more coercive institutions in, in American life that try to overcome our impulse towards sameness. That's when I think people, understandably, if you're running a, a profit-making business dedicated towards increasing scale, get off the bus a little bit. Well, the challenge with, I mean, we, we put an axis like choice and coercion on either side, and we assume that we live in a world where we actually have full choice. The reality is that our choices are always constrained by a whole set of factors, our social position, our economic position, the people that we know, et cetera, et cetera. And so choice is never so clean. It's a matter of what are the possibilities and what do we imagine as those possibilities. And that's where, you know, social scientists have had, you know, longstanding debates about at what point do we intervene? Likewise on freedom, we often, you know, turn to an American First Amendment to say that it's about freedom to speak. But a huge chunk of those freedoms as they were imagined were about freedom to hear. It was about a, a world of ideas where you could actually hear things that were really important and critical for your position as a citizen. When we, you know, drown people out, we haven't given them the freedom of he to hear. We've actually taken away their freedom to hear because we've, we've covered them with so much information that they can't actually hear at all. And so that's where I think that, you know, those notions, they also change over time. They are core to American value, but they shift and those shifts have to do with a broader social infrastructure. So my feeling is that we don't go to coercion. We just change the range of opportunities from which you can choose. We make it so that there are incentives and desires where your choices are not constrained by a set of factors that actually force you to choose against your own interests or in ways that actually put you in a, in a socially undesirable place. So right now, it's like, what does it mean to choose to go to college where you're going to be indebted and you have no economic freedom or flexibility such that your choices for what you do after college are so heavily constrained, right? That's the kind of choices we've set up, which aren't really choices. And so the question for me is, how do we rethink those choices so that we actually give people the ability to imagine a desirable end goal without feeling as though the constraints are wearing and tearing them down? So, so help me be concrete about this. What might this look like? What are experiments you've seen in this space or theories you have heard in this space that might begin to walk that path? So, you know, one of the, you know, experiments I've been toying with, um, is how would we address some of the lack of labor force in tech related issues and marry that with our need to diversify, uh, the population as a whole in order to create a, a coherent society. So imagine, for example, if we had a program that was available, you signed up, you could choose, and you, um, were given, you know, six months worth of in-depth training on a whole variety of technical skills. And in return, you were stationed in a part of this country where you actually helped people on the ground build up their technical infrastructure. So imagine helping schools build out security, helping a city hall actually build out its new databases to actually manage its processes and practices. And you were stationed in places that were purposefully and intentionally 
you know, different, differently diverse than from where you came. So, you know, you basically agreed to a one-year volunteer program in return for, you know, a trade opportunity. And we can imagine this occurring at 18 as a gap year. We can imagine this occurring at 22 as an opportunity after after college. And we can imagine this occurring, uh, you know, as a way of transitioning careers when you're older. And each of those you know, agreements that, you know, you do to actually go and invest in these, in these local, uh, environments and to learn skills, you get reduction for, for college or you get, you know, some money set aside in a form of a pension. You, you have these rewards that are given to you that are recognized by society, but are also recognized by industry that is desperate to see more people trained in a whole set of skills, right? And I can imagine ways of marrying some of those, you know, needs for a jobs project with a need for, um, a social infrastructure project. And in that ways, we are very much going back to a New Deal model mixed with a Peace Corps model, right? Peace Corps was not just about going to a foreign country. It was about actually connecting the world um, in order to stop uh, another global war coming to our shores. And so how do we start imagining projects like that and who's willing to invest in those projects? And that's where I see a lot of possibility because I see it being valuable for business. I see it being valuable for governance and I see it being valuable for society as a whole. So those are the kinds of projects that I can imagine, you know, and we can poke holes in, in the sketch that I just gave you because it's not perfect. But how do we start there and start to imagine new ways of going forward where we're really connecting people and we're giving them opportunity? Let me then ask you about the smaller version of this because so, so there's the sort of big picture, big policy, you know, universal service or or the kind of programs that you're talking about, which I, I think are, are one like very interesting scale on which to imagine this problem. But then there's the message that I think people listening to this podcast might have been hearing and that, that people are hearing all the time, which is that just in their normal day, when they log on to Facebook or they log on to Twitter, they just do what they do as a person. They go read Vox or they go read the New York Times that they are doing this constantly to themselves. And maybe they don't mean to, but but the choices they're making are part of this fracturing and finding news and, and, and content that they enjoy just in the cultural messages they receive that, that they have become part of the problem. How do you become not part of the problem here? Short of signing up for something on the, on the level you're talking about, how can you just be a good internet citizen pushing against the fracturing and uh, fraying of our social fabric? This is a matter of really focusing in on what you as an individual want to achieve for this life. What makes you happy? What gives you joy? Um, and I think that that's a question that you have to wake up and ask yourself every day. And how do your choices and actions fit into that? And, you know, it's it's always a, an interesting matter of trade-offs, right? So a good example is I'll, I'll parallel it to food, right? I really, really, really loved Lucky Charms and a lot of junk food. It makes me so happy. But it makes me happy right now. And I know that when I eat that much and I don't exercise and I stay up late, you know, with a lot of caffeine, I feel like crap in the morning. And I'm like, oh, that's probably connected to, you know, the indulging on too much Lucky Charms yesterday. And so we start to sit there and be like, okay, I have to bound these choices. I have to think about where is it that I want to be and how do I want to get there? And those are choices around food in this particular environment. But I would say it's choices about our information landscape. And I think what we're going to get to is the degree to which our information landscape has 
quite paralleled our, our food landscape. And so the question is, how do we actually step back and say, this doesn't make me feel good in the long term. It doesn't make me feel like I'm part of a society in the long term. And how do we put pressure on our institutions and our information intermediaries to be like, hey, please give me more kale. I want kale. Um, and I don't know that we're there yet. And I think that, you know, we're all looking at this and it, it's, it's the, you know, the very human instinct to desire the things that get us emotionally riled up or get us feeling, you know, you know, very energized in positive and negative ways. Um, and it requires a level of self-realization and self, you know, awakening to shift that mindset. Um, and that's, that's where it comes to the individual choice. But it also comes to the choices that we have as institutions, right? You know, at this point, media is competing with one another. They're competing with social media landscapes for economic reasons. And so as a result, we get this ecology right now, this media ecology that is driven by what is the next greatest click. And when are we also going to wake up as an institution and say what gives us the most money is not necessarily what is the role that we intend to play within society. And so I think that that's why, you know, the awakening uh, and the, and the resistance processes are not just a matter of individuals or, or communities, but they're also institutions and they're the role that we all play in institutions. Um, and I think that that's why we're, you know, we see these moments in time and I believe that this is a moment in time where we're, we're stepping back and going, uh oh. And now as we, as we shift from that, what are we going to make of it? What are we going to build from it? Are we going to continue on the same path and double down? Or are we going to shift and say, hey, I want to rebuild and, and imagine a new um, society that we actually are more comfortable with living in? Let's talk a bit about the, the fucking media. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you've written a bunch of great pieces on this, but, but you have a, a piece called I Blame the Media. And in it, you write that what worries me right now is that as it it being the media, continues to report out the spectacle. It has no structure for self-reflection, for understanding its weaknesses, its potential for manipulation. Unpack that a bit for me. Sure. I was writing uh, – do you remember the date on that? I want to say That's, it was like no – I don't remember if it was right after, right before the election. But <laughs> it's it right, right after. In that moment. It's right after. I just don't remember if it's November 9th or if I actually gave <laughs> myself a couple of days. You know, I sat, uh, you know, at election night watching the New York Times um, little like, you know, what is the current, you know, stats of the information? I'm just like, are you kidding me? This is crazy. We aren't polling at that kind of scale. So why are we trying to get everybody's anxiety up and down about what the outcome of the election is. And I realized as I was, I was reflecting on the New York Times decision to run that module that we'd been seeing that throughout the entire U.S. presidential election. We'd seen this obsessive focus on whatever the latest crazy thing that was being done. And, you know, it, of course, the critiques came out, you know, heavily. It's like, to what degree did Donald Trump receive effectively free advertising from the media because anything that he would do that would be seen as spectacle would be covered by the media only in, you know, resulting in more spectacle activity. Et cetera, et cetera. And so it's this moment where I started to watch as, as you know, the media was covering things and, and, you know, scholars of journalism have been tracking this for a very long time, that this process by which the media is feeling like it has to cover things, has to break the latest story means that it's so focused on whatever the, you know, the moment is. And that's also the place in which it becomes extremely manipulable. And it's the manipulations that I, I've been, you know, so deeply um, concerned about, which is the degree to which, you know, we're watching people set up content all over the web so that journalists feel like they found a breaking story and they want to cover it. 
And that's just scary because that means that we're, we're not seeing that double down and being like, is this the right story to tell? Is this, you know, what are the ramifications of telling the story? Does this actually make for more informed polis? How are we thinking about the role of the media, the role of journalism writ large? Um, and, you know, I think one of the places where I really – um, sort of broke and had a sad point, um, you know, maybe two months ago, um, was that the, you know, standard within journalism for the last, what is it, two decades has been to not cover, um, when people die by suicide, um, as a, ha- in the headlines or in the, above the fold. And the reason is, is that we know data after data shows that when we talk about suicide, um, as though it's a matter of fact, we almost set in motion the idea that this is an acceptable activity, that this is something that you can and should do. Um, and so coverage by the media of deaths by suicide has often triggered more. Um, and we saw this throughout the 80s in particular. So journalists had really backed away from covering that. And I'll never forget, you know, the first time where I opened my phone um, and I got a New York Times alert that said that somebody had died by suicide. And of course, this was somebody who was, there was the, the manhunt of um, uh, a man who uh, had killed people. And so this was wrapped up in our conversations on terrorism. Um, and so all of a sudden, we're back to talking about suicide, you know, and I'm in this point right now where I'm watching, you know, painfully as, um, you know, a Netflix show um, that depicts suicide has has prompted and triggered uh, a huge uptick in people, uh, you know, and young people reaching out and, and engaging in depressive acts and sometimes suicide ideology and attempts. You know, on the board of Crisis Text Line, we've been really grappling with this because we're seeing constant young people reaching out you know, texting us, talking to counselors, and we're like, whoa, what are we doing? So when I sit there and I say I blame the media, it's, it's my frustration. It's about, it's about, you know, traditional news media. It's about entertainment media. It's about social media. It's about all of these landscapes where rather than thinking about the responsibilities, the, the moral and ethical responsibilities we have for society, we sit there and focus on whatever people want in the short term. And we don't take responsibility for the long term. And I think, you know, one of the books that was really interesting to me is, is a book by Ryan Holiday called Trust Me, I'm Lying, where as a, f- um, social media marketer, he outed all of the processes by which he manipulated the media in order to, um, you know, get a lot of attention for the brands that he was paying attention to. And there's one point in that book where he has a moment of, of reflection where he says that he was really struck by a situation that occurred where the media had decided not to cover something. And in this case, it was about the media deciding not to cover Quran burning. And there's a pastor in, in Florida who often likes to provoke the media and wants media coverage, and the media had decided not to cover it. But then a blogger decided that they were going to blog about it. And then the journalists started piling on and covering it as something that was written about in the blogs because they felt like once it was opened up, they felt like they had the ability to to report on it. And, of course, as this would unfold, we would end up in riots in Afghanistan. We would end up with people who died because of how this media story ended up playing out. And that's that question of like, where do we start to take responsibility for those who are seeking to manipulate the media, whether that is social media, whether that is news media, whether that is entertainment media, where they're seeking to manipulate that media to get attention? And what are the consequences of us doing that? And how do we take responsibility for those consequences? So this is such a, it is such a good, deep, hard topic. So uh, I hear speak as part of the media. I run a media organization and, and I've worked at others. And one of the the difficulties we have that I think about a lot is a challenge 
in talking about and managing our own status as an actor. Mm -hmm. The the media's self I don't want to say self-perception because we're smarter than that. But the media's hope is that there is this thing called reality or or in a more narrow sense a thing called a political campaign or a war or whatever it might be. And that we sort of wander around and write it up and find new information about it, but that it is like playing out separate from us. And we are just telling you what's happening in it. When, of course, we're changing it constantly. We're one of the most powerful. We are arguably the most powerful actor in an election, right? We are the mediating and practically before the rise of, of social media, we are the mediating layer between politicians and, and the people they're trying to talk to. But we don't want to have an effect like that. We don't want to change an election. We don't want to change most of the stories that we cover. There, there are exceptions, of course, where we're, where we decide to move into a social crusader role. And, you know, we do want to change the fact that, you know, there are pipes leaking lead in Baltimore or something. But when it comes to, to politics and, and some of these other topics, we don't want to change anything. And yet, of course, we change everything. And the way we tend to manage that challenge, that tension is by simply not admitting it is by sort of turning our eyes away from it and refusing to have the kinds of conversations that would work towards deciding what kind of effect we wanted to have on the world. Because once we open those conversations, then we're opening everything. Then we're opening what we are. We are uh, admitting ourselves to be an actor. We are admitting every decision we make to be fundamentally a political act. And that's a very scary place for us. And and I don't say that without uh, sympathy for my colleagues or, or for myself because there aren't good answers. I mean, I get tons of – during the campaign particularly, got tons of, of incoming from people saying, why don't you just ignore Donald Trump? And I don't think it's my role to decide that one of the, 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 the presidential candidate leading in the GOP primary polls shouldn't get coverage. That, that feels – I'm OK with some effect and that feels – very dangerous for me. But, but so I'm very curious from the outside how you think about this because the media does have this very difficult crisis of trust it's facing. And, you know, the more we decide what effect we want to have on the world, the more people who don't want us to have that effect because a lot of them are not as universal as let's have fewer suicides. Um, the more people who don't want us to have whatever effect we're, we're orienting towards here get angry and and the more the good we can do if to the extent we are doing any good is diminished mm -hmm. and this is where i think you know in effect the media is the original algorithm you you stated earlier it's like how could we not understand that algorithms are biased they're shaped by people they're not neutral the same is true with journalists there's no way that you can get on air and not reveal some biases and values and commitments. And not only do you reveal that in the process in which you talk, you reveal that in the choices of the stories that you cover. And I think that the same problems we have in terms of reflexivity in the tech sector are also problems of reflexivity we have in journalism. And the result is, is that there's like a warring faction between, between tech and media about, you know, who's, you know, failing worse. Um, which I think is, is the funny thing of watching, you know, post-election coverage, which is, the, degree to which everybody's like, don't blame the media, blame tech. And I'm like, wait a minute, guys, <laughs> you guys are doing the same thing. Um, and I think that's because reflexivity is really hard. And it's also hard because not only are there no good solutions, as you pointed out, but we have to grapple with our own hypocrisy. 
right? Our decisions contradict themselves. We don't, we, we, we want to inform, but we don't know necessarily what we want to do with that. We want to curate, but only so far. And so finding those boundaries is one of the hardest things to be done. And it's one of the reasons why, just like people have manipulated technical systems through search engine optimization, through spam, through all sorts of algorithmic, you know, messes, they've manipulated the media. And so I think that it's just important as we look to our, our broader ecosystem is, is to be aware of that. And, you know, it's not just for us scholars to say to you, you know, there's no way you can get yourself out of this trap. It's also for folks to start imagining, you know, different sorts of norms and protocols. And what are the what are the best practices that we come up with? And those are never easy. And that's one of the reasons why I referenced the suicide example, which is the degree to which there was a time and place when journalists went, oh, we can't do this. What will it take to do that again? And a lot of it right now has to do with many journalists are feeling existentially confused about their role within society. Their businesses are, are attacked in different ways. And so there's this attitude that this is not the time to be reflexive. And it's like, I would argue, no, this is exactly the time to be reflexive. Because you know what? It's probably going to result in, in media as we know it collapsing, but hopefully also forming a new form of media that we can actually stand by and believe in. Um, and that's, that's a hard point of change and transition in society. But it's also reflecting a broader set of anxieties within the public as a whole. You know, the public is very confused about how they're consuming and making sense of information. They don't trust many players. They've been socialized into an idea that they should go and research it themselves in ways that actually can be deeply costly. We see the rise of conspiracy theories when we see, you know, a moment of feeling like you can connect different pieces and tell a story. And that same practice that allows us to be researchers or investigative journalists also is the manufacturing of conspiracy. And so in order to actually go back and, and, and challenge this, it's not just going out and saying, you know, don't propagate this conspiracy or, you know, think about it this way. It's about, whoa, how did we get here where the ways in which that plays out magnifies? So let me actually be concrete for a second. Take something like Pizzagate, right? Do you want to quickly the, tell people oh, sure. what Pizzagate was? So after John Podesta's emails uh, were hacked and, and made publicly available, a whole group of people online started trying to see what they could learn inside those emails. And one of the theories that emerged in various online fora was the idea that there was a pizza shop in, in Washington, D.C. that is where a child sex ring was occurring that was supported by the Clinton, by Clinton and um, Podesta. And it's, it, we can laugh at it. It's pretty laughable. But actually, the story of it makes a lot of sense when you start a, it's piecing a crazy, things I know, together. I just want to know, like, it's like, this is all real. Like, this is a pizza shop I go to. It was, it got somehow drawn into this in crazy, it just, I, I don't laugh because it, what happens here is funny. I laugh because, like, it is one of the most absurd things it, it, but I wouldn't not. have believed it if somebody had told me it would happen. Right. And what's so fascinating to me is actually how it all fits together, which is that, you know, there is a long history of people who have been researching and trying to make sense of commercial sexual abuse of children, right? And many of them are evangelical Christians um, in this country. They've been really involved in trying to combat um, child sex trafficking, which has been very, very important. And some of the conversations that have come up of, you know, the, that broad network of people who um, most of many of whom are church affiliated, who have tried to combat um, this deeply problematic practice, evil practice, is that they've noticed that there's a lot of political figures 
figures who have had very inappropriate interactions with minors, including, you know, violent sexual encounters with minors around the world. And we can come up with a bazillion and one cases. The other thing we know is that historically, the ways in which high powerful individuals would try to get access to exploit young people was often through encoded conversations. And pizza was actually an encoded conversation that was actually well established long before there was the internet. People would actually call up and order pizza with different references to items on the pizza to refer to their sexual proclivities. It's a really messed up background. And you have an environment where, you know, you have a, a candidate running for office, Hillary Clinton, who has spent a huge chunk of her time in the State Department trying to fight human trafficking. And for those who are very critical of her and, and are, in particular of her husband, feel as though she's trying to cover up or make up for his actions. And not only that, you have, you know, a storyline that, that emerges that is accurate where we have Anthony Weiner um, engaging in really inappropriate behavior, most likely illegal behavior. And as a result, you know, his now ex-wife working for, for Clinton. If you are critical of Clinton and you're not sure where that's going, it starts to piece together as though she's doing something that's a cover-up. It starts to make sense. And that storyline starts to, you know, play out and make sense for people. But it's not only that. And this is where we go back to the media landscape. It's the very fact that I just explained that that will actually convince more people to believe it is to be true. And that's what scares me. My ability to try to tell you that, you know, what is happening and why it all fits together and my, my, you know, the high likelihood with which you will negate any possibility of this or that anybody will negate Pizzagate will convince more people that it's true. That's the boomerang effect. And indeed, as the media started trying to negate it, more people felt that they needed to go and research it and find it for themselves. Hundreds of people showed up to that pizza shop trying to find out for themselves whether or not it was real. One showed up with a gun. right? And it's this challenge that we have in how we produce or tell stories that we have to grapple with. And I have to grapple with this as I'm telling you the story because I know that this boomerang effect is real. And that's what's really tricky is that that moment of reflexivity of how do you actually tease these things out is something that we all need to be grappling with and just making decisions about how we tell stories and even how we negate stories. The more that we try to negate things that are that are frames within broader society, whether we're talking about climate change, whether we're talking about correlations between vaccination and autism, the more we try to challenge those, the more we actually convince people that they are real. And that is a scary thing to think about. And it's one of the reasons that I, as a writer, still like to imagine that I'm writing to six people. And you, as a journalist, really want to think that you're just reporting. But that's where I think that we're in for trouble if we don't actually start grappling with those issues. So I, that is such a wonderful um, outlining of how, of how incredibly hard this problem is. And, and it's why I want to go back to this idea that the media is being manipulated. The media is always, always, always being manipulated. And, and uh, you know, one of the things we're good at is knowing that, actually. We are very sophisticated about the ways in which we're getting manipulated by our sources, by our readers, by the conversation around us. It isn't there, – there are conversations we won't have, but that's actually not one of them. The, the thing that I, I'll tell you just totally honestly that I struggle with is these spaces where there just aren't good answers. So let, let's go back um, even before Pizzagate to the Podesta emails. We have these emails that emerge and it, it becomes clear reasonably quickly that there has been a concerted illegal hack of the Democratic National Committee's servers. Um, and that hack probably 
originated with a foreign government trying to sow chaos in the American election or possibly elect Donald Trump, depending on on who or what you believe. And it, there are a couple different email hacks here, and they're from different people. So I don't want to I don't want to overly confuse these issues, but but let's just use that one, the Russia hacks, which remain a big a big deal even today. We knew at the time, maybe not on day one, but pretty quickly, what was going on there, and yet. It was – if somebody had just come to us and said, I stole all these emails, I broke into a bunch of computers and I stole all these emails, do you want them? That would have raised a lot of ethical red flags. But now they're out there. Others are pursuing them. Some are pursuing them in very irresponsible ways and, and coming up with real bullshit out of them. And so now you get into this question of on the one hand, you know you're kind of doing Russia's bidding. And on the other hand, to suppress this information would be – arguably worse. It would make it seem more salacious. It would make it seem some of it wasn't true. It would make it seem more truthful. It would not allow you to contextualize it. Um, or, or, you know, you were talking earlier about the decision the media made to begin reporting on the preacher burning Qurans. Um, I don't know that case as well. Uh, and I don't know how much wildfire it, it found in the blogosphere. But there's a way in which the, hey, we're just covering the conversation is the worst dodge in media. It really can be. And then there's a way in which to the point you just made about how when it looks like maybe we are covering something up, even when it even when it seems we're doing that just because we are debunking it, it makes people more interested. Uh, that can be dangerous too. And, and so this is one of those things. I mean, you had a, a nice piece where you talked about, you know, the news media needs to wake up to this. It needs to wake up to the fact that it's being manipulated. To a large extent, I think the news media has woken up to it. I just genuinely don't think we know what to do. So I think there's two different pieces there. First, I think that the dynamics of manipulation have changed. I think that most journalists are well aware that their sources are manipulating them. They're well aware that institutions, you know, financial as well as governmental, have a vested interest in making certain that they tell a specific story. Where I think that journalists are less aware is the degree to which content is produced all over the web for them to fall into, to cover, to scale. And that's where I think things are trickier, right? The tweet that you don't realize has been positioned so that you will magnify it. The blog post that you looks give an, like give it's an example juicy. here. I don't want to because I don't want to scale them. I mean, I can, we can do that offline, but I think part of what's tricky to me, I mean, I, that's one of the reasons I think that I did the Quran burning one because I think that that one is actually well documented and Ryan does a great job with it. Um, that was, it went from bloggers all the way up. Um, and I watched, you know, th these dynamics happening on Twitter on a regular basis, most of which are benign. But to your broader thing about, you know, what do we cover? Part of it is whether or not you believe that you have the ability to scale a message. Fundamentally, a top-tier journalism entity, their ability to scale to a broader audience is what makes them and gives them power, right? And that's where it's tricky because it's not that these conversations don't happen. They are happening. It's that you have the ability to scale it to a much broader audience. And that's what makes it tricky and, and, and the responsibility becomes so heavy. And it's one of the reasons why, again, I keep joking that I want an audience of six, right? Because it's so much easier to write and think publicly when you don't think that you are going to actually shape things at that scale. And once you reflect on the shaping, that's where it becomes 
worse. Um, and that's where, you know, it's not about necessarily covering things up. I would argue it's not covering things up. Covering things up is where, you know, you're putting, you know, rainbows and unicorns on instead of, instead of talking about important topics. The question is, how do you step back and think about your coverage? What is, the, what is the weight you're giving to different kinds of issues? How have you decided those trade-offs? Right? And those trade-offs are also how we, you know, produce the social values that are so important to us, right? Right? You know, at this moment in time, we are paying a lot of attention politically to what is going on in um, the UK, right? They're coming up against an election. We had two different, you know, um, acts that uh, appear to be are, are most likely to be terrorist attacks. Um, there are, you know, large number of people that died who are seen as as significant or, or as, um, as civilians. Um, at the same time, we have news stories that are also happening in the U.S. of people dying, you know, in Orlando of a workplace shooting, right, where just as many people died in Orlando or I guess five people died in Orlando where seven people died in, in London. But the amount of attention that we give to each is disproportionate. Why? Because the conversation is so politically fraught around, um, you know, talking about terrorism and it's a different kind of political fraughtness than it is about access to guns or workplace violence or all of the other frames that we can imagine positioning Orlando in. And can I add one thing to that? Yeah. Just to, because I think it helps make it makes another part of your point. The terror attack, it is literally an effort at media manipulation, right? They are literally trying to get that coverage all over the world, and we we don't know how to not play. I mean, we know that perfectly well, and we don't we and we play right into it, right? ISIS is trying to appear strong, appear able to wage a war on the West, and if we just didn't mention it, you know, or it was on a twenty three. That would oh, but that's that not cost. the answer. There's a difference. So tell me between, what the, that's what I'd love to. Right. What is the answer? So it's a difference between running a factual reporting of, hey, this is what occurred in London, and this is the situation, and this is the political response, to going in and and interviewing everybody about how that how they were afraid, right? Like the number of coverage that I've seen in the last couple of days that is, you know, talking to bystanders and and having those by and giving a voice to those bystanders of like how scary it is and do people want to travel to London anymore and should we even question this and you know what is it that you know Trump is saying about how we should be afraid that is the magnification of the terrorist narrative right that is very different than there was this incident in London here is what occurred and that's both a different and and it's also the amount of airtime Right. We want the population to know that this occurred, but we don't want it to be the 24 seven news cycle. But right now we have 24 seven news. And because people are so wrapped up in it, they obsess over topics like this and they want to keep tuning in. And you literally can't tune out if you want to watch the news. And that's where the cost is born. Right. The cost is born is not being able to tune out, seeing CNN on any public, you know, TV and not being able to walk away with it from it. Retelling the stories over and over again of the what ifs and the horrors and asking the population to constantly be thinking that way. That is the terrorist agenda. So let me talk about another way in which I don't know if it's a way we get manipulated, but I think it is one of the great weaknesses that has been unveiled in this era in the media, in social media more broadly, just in our informational habits. And that is that a lesson of the past, let's say five or six or seven years, certainly to me, has been that we thought what mattered was sentiment in coverage to a large extent, and it turns out to be attention. The, the great thing Donald Trump understood, the thing he did 
that no other presidential candidate I have ever seen has been willing to do is elicit an endless amount of media coverage that is negative. He was willing, if it was what was required to keep him on the front page, to do things that people would not like, that the reason it would get coverage was it was aberrantly out of the mainstream. It was upsetting in ways that you know other candidates wouldn't do, like saying Ted Cruz's father was probably involved in JFK Jr.'s assassination. That gets you a lot of coverage. And normally, a political candidate without that would be a disaster because that coverage is all negative. But he realized that there are some people who it won't be negative for, right? They'll they'll see it in, in, in another way, but also just it crowds out everything else. It, it makes you bigger. And, and that seems to me to be one of the pretty signal dynamics of this era on, on social media, too. We see a lot of things that the sentiment around them is negative. And I'm not even saying horrible, you know, um, terror attacks and workplace shootings, uh, just a lot of things people dislike. But the amount of attention they get ends up being a lot more important than the kind of attention they get. And, and that that seems to me to be something that we don't know how to deal with yet. And that's one of the reasons I think that there's a difference in responsibility for media institutions than there is for even, you know, everyday bloggers, which is at the end of the day, a media institution can look at the portfolio of topics it covers and say, are we weighting these correctly? Are we actually making certain that the combination of things is actually telling the story that we want to be telling? Or are we making it so that the public can't pay attention to anything other than one topic? And that's where I don't think that the, the media industry is doing its, its job when it invites the population to only pay attention to one thing, right? And it's not to say that the, that one thing of the day isn't important. It's that there's a lot of things that are important, both positive and negative about what's going on in society. And an informed policy has to be grappling with all of them simultaneously, not just so narrowly mindedly focused on one thing. And so that's where I think it's this a question of responsibility for an institution, which is how do you cover the storylines of the day collectively so that the population does hear them, but that that is not just one story over and over and over from a ton of different angles to make it so that this is the only thing that's happening around the globe. The media has a very opaque set of standards, measures, decision-making mechanisms for what gets crowd-out coverage. Right. I think that if you just sort of step back to try to ask what dominates the news cycle on any given day, it would actually be very hard to pull a pattern out of it. Not impossible, right? If it if it comes from the president, it's more likely, et cetera, et cetera. But but a lot of things are are somewhat random. And I guess one question there is certainly some things do deserve a lot of attention. Right. I mean, it isn't the case that everything should be equal. And, and one of the hard things in media is that we also have to cover. There's so much more that needs to be covered and so many more angles on everything that need to be covered than we can possibly deal with that. We have to make these decisions and we have to make them fast and constantly. So how do you think about what deserves sort of crowd out coverage? I mean, when should a terror attack be all over the news? Because certainly sometimes. Right. Um, but but how do you begin to think about what are how do you even begin to have a conversation about a sort of more transparent and more rigorous decision making process for those questions well, i mean and that fundamentally to me is why there's a moral responsibility when you have a large platform to really think through how you're telling a narrative and it's not that this should be a 
you know, democratic exercise or that this is necessarily something that we want to, you know, turn it over to the public um, to decide because, you know, frankly, we go back to like, I really want more details on the gossip of Kim Kardashian, right? Like, it's more about how do we think about that responsibility and how do we hold ourselves collectively accountable? And what are the mechanisms of accountability? You know, when it comes to the very brass tacks of this, I think a lot of, you know, this is about, you know, asking a question of any given story is who benefits from the story and who doesn't, right? That very simple act, which is asked in newsrooms, but really needs to be thought of strategically across all the stories. Are we actually playing into somebody's particular narrative? Um, what voices are heard and what voices are not heard? Um, and we often use this to say, like, we should have all these different voices on the topic of the day. Well, there's a whole variety of topics that are never covered, right? And that's been a lot of the critique from communities of color, from, you know, other minority groups basically saying, hey, our experiences, our narratives, the things that are really important to us, those aren't covered. Where do we invest our resources for investigative work, right? Are they just focused on, you know, what the latest and greatest thing is? And this is where I think we're having this economic conversation. Um, so everything becomes so obsessed with the things that we can get quickly and cheaply rather Rather than the deep dive challenging story that's important for journalism to be telling. Um, and that's why I say that this is, it's about strategy. It's about moral compass. Um, it's about debating across the industry and really thinking about it. It's about shifting the world of competition, right? Right now, because the way that most, uh, you know, major, um, news enterprises are set up is that they're for-profit companies. So they're compete, and they're competing around advertisers. And so the result is, is that rather than sharing information, journalism has been a, in an ecosystem of competing with each other to tell the story in a way that, you know, the competition goes to the, you know, lowest common denominator rather than actually going to, wow, if we shared information, we could tell a holistic and complicated story. And that's one of the reasons I think that there's shifts that are needed. Um, and you know, it was, ironic because I actually thought that, you know, as everybody was blowing up in the periods from, you know, I'd say 2004 to 2007, where, you know, when, when amateur diarists were ruining journalism, right, the, the rise of bloggers and the questions of the, of the financial ecosystem, journalism actually started, you know, grappling with a whole slew of things, but it became so focused on money that it lost track of some of these other questions. And the irony, of course, is that huge chunks of Major news media at this point have been controlled in part by hedge funds, private equity, financialization. We've seen a collapse of local news in part due to financialization. Um, so it's not just the internet. We're seeing all of these shifts, but rather than actually saying, okay, it's time for us to step back and say, what is our, our real, you know, industry wide, you know, moral compass? And, you know, do we do this from a for profit vantage point? There's been more of a doubling down on salaciousness and economic profit. Oh, there's so much there. I, I, I will push a little bit on, please, on part of this. Do. I don't, I think that journalism became much more competitive for audience. I've mm -hmm. been in a lot of newsrooms now and I've never been in one where it felt to me and, and I've, uh, you know, I'm, I'm reasonably attentive to this question that the way people were thinking about it was money. Um, but journalists do have a real desire to be read or if you're a video journalist to be watched or podcast journalists to be heard. And it can be one thing that happened is in some ways journalism became a lot less focused on money. We make a lot less money than we used to. Uh, and, and that creates obviously existential risk. But within newsrooms, I think the thing that, that began to happen is 
you were now in competition with everyone else for your readers at every second. So and this is how I see the two is linked. This is where the two are linked, which is that for journalists, they hold their moral compass by saying that this is about engaging their readers. But those clicks are measured and then sold to advertisers. That's actually how the business side of the media works right now. And so the journalists, you're right. They're, they're in it for attention. They're in it for making certain that their, their story gets out. They're in it for that audience. But the enterprise of, of media as a business now is connecting that goal and driving that, you know, that, you know, pressure point to a point that's also connected to the business. Right. But the, the, the place I push and the reason I, th- the reason I think it's a, a useful distinction is that because the journals are so focused on audience, it doesn't really change that much if you transform the underlying business incentives. So I've worked at I've worked in nonprofit journalism, and I was as obsessed with audience there as I am now. I mean, in different ways because I had a different role. But I think when when the conversation says, "Oh, it's because of money," then it feels like maybe there's an easy fix. But it is a I think a pretty hard set of decisions you have to make now in terms of what you cover and in terms of how do you appeal to readers and also in terms of how do you respond to an environment where everyone is covering anything. And so now where, you know, it used to be that you could set the agenda more if you're not responding to something, it looks weird. It isn't to say that money doesn't matter in journalism. Of, of course it does, right? We are all trying to figure out ways to have viable business models. But, but having been around a lot of those conversations, they are more distant from what I think of as very, very, very difficult dynamics driving this kind of attentional reflexivity that we've all developed. Um, but that the, attention is about quantity, not quality. And so, I mean, that's, and then yeah, part of the problem is you can't definitely. actually see. You get to see how many viewers you have or how many downloads you have or how many clicks you have. You don't get to see as a journalist wow, the right person heard that story and made a transformation in their life that had serious consequences for many other people, right? Those would ideally be what, what you, which, you know, led you to do the work that you did. But instead, you, you're pushed in some ways. And again, this is that nudging. This is that, that idea that our choices aren't really choices. It's the idea that, you know, because the feedback that you get is numbers, it's about getting as many clicks as possible Absolutely. rather than getting transformations. You know, and, and this is a this is a place where this stuff is very, very hard. I mean, we think a lot at Vox. Uh, I think we're pretty sophisticated in our analytics and, and we use analytics that I think people would find unusual. But we really struggle with the question of how do you measure influence? How do you measure impact, right? We're, we're smart enough to know that just measuring page views doesn't get you there. Smart enough to know that just measuring um, unique visitors doesn't get you there. So you end up on very qualitative metrics. Um, and, and we do a lot of that work. And, and, I, and I should say for, for my other colleagues in journalism, all the places do a lot of work. There are virtually no journalism outlets I know of that we would be thinking about in this conversation whom if you just assumed what they were trying to do is get clicks, you would end up with a content mix like the one we have. Right. We are all all the time creating a sort of mental waiting between, you know, how to do the best work we can and cover the things we think are important and how to make sure that coverage reaches people. But um, it is a deep, deep, deep frustration for all of us that it isn't easier to measure or isn't easier to somehow get feedback telling us, hey, did this do what it was supposed to do at Vox? You know, what we think of as our output is understanding. Right. What we want to do is move people from curiosity uh, about a topic, about a news topic, to understanding of the underlying issue. 
we cannot see if we have done that by seeing if somebody read or even if they share the article. But what are we going to do? I mean, are we going to offer people a quiz when they leave the site? <laughs> like you got to you got to fill out a term paper when you when you head out. That stuff is very very difficult. And and the thing that I the place where I very much do agree with you on this is in the absence of being able to measure the things we want most and manage towards that, we measure things or not that are not the things we want most and we end up at least on the margin managing towards that in in ways that are difficult. That's a good bridge, though, to, to one other topic that I want to make sure we covered, um, which affects journalism in this way, but also affects um, other groups that you've studied, which is the technology, particularly the informational technology underneath us is changing very rapidly. And as part of that, it feels to me that we are all participating in a very fast social experiment where what we can do and even what we do in a, in a daily way is moving faster than our sort of social conventions for managing it. You know, I, I think sort of the canonical easy example here is the way we look at phones while we're talking to each other now. Not sure that if that at all evolved slowly, we would do the same thing, but it all just happened and, and here we are. And I'm curious as an anthropologist, how you think about the tension between how much some of this is changing underneath us for journalists, for non-journalists, and how slowly um, societies, I think traditionally, how long it takes to really figure out how to socially embed new technologies and new approaches in ways that are sort of productive and safe and well managed. Well, and I think, I mean, I think you're right that this is also a good bridge between the two pieces because a lot of this is about how we experience, you know, the logics of the world around us, right? In the case of, of a business, it's about what the organizational logics and incentives are. Um, in the case of journalism, it's, you know, it's about, you know, what's, you know, self-perception, um, and the kinds of competition that go on. Um, and in terms of everyday lives, it's about how we fit into how we imagine our world should operate. Now, the funny thing is, is that, you know, given my training, my first instinct is to say, hey, guess what? At all these points in history, people thought things were moving way too fast, right? So there's also these moments where local perception of how things are being disruptive um, is often not indicative of the longer trends. Um, and there, are, that doesn't mean that there aren't serious you know, changes. And in fact, when we look back historically, we look at certain times as having been more or less disruptive, right? And, you know, certainly a, a lot of the way that we narrate the story of the 20th century is a story through war and through technical intervention, often connected to um, to war and labor and other practices. Um, I think that what's important to hold on to are the real costs of perceived social instability. And those real costs of instability are not necessarily about actual instability. And this is one of the things people keep pointing out, you know, in general, which is that, you know, we, we've had, we have, you know, low levels of mortality rates. Globally, we're better off. We have access to all sorts of goodies that we didn't have before in history. But our perception is that, you know, things are much worse. Our perception is that there's a higher level of stress and anxiety and inequity. And sometimes some of these things are actually real, but the cost more than anything is that perception. And so one of the other challenges in all of this is how do we grapple with the perception? Actually take it at face value and grapple with it. And what does it mean as a society to try to combat stress, for example? 
right? We know that if the population was less stressed, it would have all of these positive outcomes in mental health, in physical health, um, in social well-being. But how do you encourage a population to not perceive things as so much worse? Um, and that's actually where I think that the technologies in many ways have done a funny disservice um, because we're always innovating technologies for like the cool things that people could do. But part of that constant movement of innovation is that it's constantly making people feel as though things are radically changing. And that perception of things radically changing leads to them being stressed out that things are so much worse, right? And that's one of the reasons I, I you know, I think it's funny because you, you highlight that in the realm of journalism, it's like, you know, what do we do? It's not so easy. That is true about every aspect of this. Um, and that's, I think, part of why the work that I do is so complicated because there's no easy answers. There's no easy fixes. This is not a moment where we can go back to a former era where things were, you know, in our mind's eyes so much better when in fact, by every metric of that day, they weren't, but we perceive them to be better. And that's, I think what we can do is resist the obsessive desire to think that things were better if or when or, you know, that we can, if we just fix this thing, the problem will go away and sort of grapple with the complexity of our society. And that is where I think we owe it to ourselves to start dealing. And the other point I would make on all of this is that you know, one of the challenges is a blessing and a curse. You know, following World War II, we, uh, you know, both in Europe and, and in the U.S., there was a deep commitment to creating a more globalized world, right, to prevent a war like that from ever occurring again. Never did people imagine that making a more globalized world would also mean that we were actually distributing risk and, and, and challenges across the world in a way that we're now facing, right? So we're dealing with the ramifications of, of living in a globalized world. We're dealing with ramifications of inequity. We're, we're dealing with ramifications around fear. And so the question for me is, what is our 1950s response to right now? And then what are the unintended consequences that we're going to be facing 40 years from now because of that? And how do we learn to think and grapple with that constant shift because I think that's that's where we're at and that's where technology allows us to see and the question is what we do with that information if we can even stomach that information and right now I don't know that everybody can even stomach the information let alone figure out how to use it to move forward in a positive direction. I think that is a, a good point to close. So I'm going to ask you the question then we used to end this podcast, which is along along the way, along your studies, what are three books that have influenced you that you've liked that you would recommend to the audience? Um, you know, part of, you know, a, a sort of it's, rather than quick answer, it's like I love books that sort of change the way that I think about basic things. So I'll give you three ones that your readers may not have read. Um, first would be a book by Jean Briggs called Inuit Morality Play. And it's about how Inuit culture teaches children morality by doing things that you would never expect. And so the basic idea is that it would be so crazy in an American society if when your child came up to you and said, you know, Daddy, I feel bad, you would, your instinct would be say, I'm sorry. Instead, um, the question that you might ask from an Inuit cultural perspective is say, well, why don't you kill the person who makes you feel bad, right? And that's crazy. But it's part of the way in which they then ask questions because assuming you're not raising a sociopath, you'd be like, no, I don't feel bad like that, right? And that process is really important. So it's a beautiful book for, for you know, giving, giving that material. Another one that, you know, I've been living with and thinking through a lot lately, which um, 
is probably well known to your readers but may not have read it in a while, is Hannah Arendt's Banality of Evil. Um, and this is such a controversial book in its time and day. And it's about how we individually can contribute to things that we find absolutely horrific. And I think those are those moments of, of – you know, stepping back and saying, "Oh, I need to, um, I need to think about that holistically." A third book um, that I I love is uh, Margaret Mead put together a, a collection of her Red Book essays, um, and they actually tell a story of how people grapple with the exact conversations we've had in this in this last hour, in a different time and different era. And you realize that these conversations repeat each other over and over again. And so I love to remind myself that this, you know, historically this keeps coming back uh, and and shaping us. So hopefully, those are three that'll. That'll delight your readers in fun ways, or your, your listeners in fun ways. Dana Boyd, thank you very much. Thank you to Dana Boyd. Um, I really enjoyed that conversation. I hope you did too. Thank you to my producer, Bert Pinkerton, my engineers, Peter Leonard and Miles Ewell, and our intern, Carly Citrin, for her help on this episode. Guess what Clown Show is on the Vox Media Podcast Network, and we'll be back next week. <laughs>